It's been three weeks since journalist Jamal Khashoggi was murdered. On October 2nd, he walked into the Saudi consulate in Istanbul and never came out. Not alive, at least. Every time you think you've heard all the terrible details about his death, you learn another one. Just another unbelievable cover story. So let's lay this out. One of the Saudis was an autopsy expert and that a bone saw was used on the body after the murder. Hmm. A bone saw, talk of an assassination squad. It it sounds like Turkish authorities are, are moving towards the theory that this indeed was a targeted murder. And each bit of information, each new horrific detail, it's all been coming from the same place. Turkish officials claim he was murdered by a fifth in Turkey. Turkish officials are accusing Saudi Arabia. For hours, unnamed Turkish officials have told the Washington Post and Reuters that he was killed in that consulate. Essentially, that Turkish officials have come to the conclusion that he was murdered. CNN has not been able to independently confirm those reports. Today, the president of Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, he stood in front of parliament in Ankara and kept making the case that Khashoggi's death was premeditated. He called the murder a political act. He called for an independent investigation. You could feel President Erdogan tightening of eyes, spinning this web of facts that would be hard to escape. Watching that speech, I had one question. For Turkey, what next? I'm Mary Harris. Slate's own Josh Keating is going to help me answer that question today. But first, I'm going to talk to Slate writer Eamon Ismail. As a Muslim American, he's been thinking about what happened to Jamal Khashoggi from a totally different perspective. And he's got some ideas about how Muslims like him can take action. Stay with us. When President Erdogan addressed Parliament in Turkey on Tuesday, he was really careful in how he spoke about the Saudi royal family. He used a formal name for King Salman. He called him the custodian of the two holy mosques. It was a reminder that for those who practice Islam, Saudi Arabia isn't just a place. It's a place Muslims are required to go, at least once in their lives, if they can, for a spiritual pilgrimage known as the Hajj. For Slate's Amin Ismail, the Hajj has always been something he's longed for since he was small. Now, I remember when I was a kid, they had, they'd set up a fake one in the gymnasium for us to go around and... They'd set up a fake Hajj? Yeah, to like teach us how to do it and teach us like the significance. And I remember, I have like this picture of me in the mix as a little kid, like loving it. Like, this is awesome. But these days, Eamon's been thinking a lot about how much he's willing to compromise when it comes to his spiritual responsibility. Because the Hajj is expensive and all that money goes to the Saudi government, a government that seems to be responsible not just for Jamal Khashoggi's death, but humanitarian crises in places like Yemen, too. Tell me, you, how long have you been saving for the Hajj? I've been saving for the Hajj for the last two years. How much money do you think you need? For me and my wife to go together, I think I need about $20,000. What does that include? That includes, like, hiring someone, getting a plane ticket? What is it, what is it all? Yeah, you, so you need to pay the visa— on Monday, Eamon wrote an article called What's a Muslim to Do About the Hajj? He wants young Muslims like himself to reconsider the pilgrimage. America or New York City to Mecca. And it's a whole month you're taking. Yeah. It's one of those things that you consciously need to decide you're going to be doing years in advance. Huh. 
uh, my mom went and, uh, you know, I'm never going to forget my dad making meals for us. You know, it's like different. But those kinds of memories that you have. That Your you, mom went on her own. Yeah. Huh. Uh, she, we couldn't be left alone. She had kids. So, like, my dad and my mom had to go separately. When your mom came back, what did she say about it? She said it was the single greatest moment of her life. Really? Yeah, and she meant it. I mean, think about the experience, right? We've, we've seen pictures. People dress all the same. People, you, you're not really understanding everyone because everybody's speaking a different language. Everybody's coming from a different culture and a different background. But still, you all come together, tens of millions of people, to perform the exact same actions and perform in the exact same ritual. So it's this spiritual oneness that I imagine is like if Woodstock had a Woodstock, you know what I mean? Like it's just like out of control where there's just all these people coming together peacefully for for one purpose. So I can imagine that it's spiritually transforming. When you speak about it, I can hear this longing in your voice. Dinago. So so you've been thinking about Saudi Arabia's role in the Muslim faith for a while. But then this month you hear about what happened with Jamal Khashoggi. What changed? What changed for me was I noticed that the Western media was paying attention now. You know, I, I've always had my doubts and reservations about these like foreign governments. I was in Egypt during the the Arab Spring, and we all thought that the spring was going to free Arab peoples all over the whole region. And when it came to Saudi Arabia, they they cracked down right away, brutally, you know. So, so the Saudi Arabian government being brutal isn't news to anyone, not not any Muslim, I don't think, either. It's that suddenly CNN was reporting on it regularly, and that Fox News was even reporting on it, and Trump was tweeting about it, you know. Uh, I can't think of the last time Van Jones had anything to say about the crisis in Yemen, you know, which has been happening for the last three years. So uh, it was a moment of clarity. Now everybody's talking about it. This is this is a good thing, but what's going to happen? Is the pressure going to dissolve or are Muslims going to start thinking about how they themselves can pressure the custodians of their holy places to act right? So you're definitely not going to go this coming year? I don't think I could. I mean, the only thing that would change that is if the Saudi government took responsibility for what they did and took a step in wanting to fix the wrongdoings that they've done to the innocent people in Yemen. Uh, I, don't, I can't say that I'm beyond the pale, you know? Uh, but I, I can say that I'm morally and ethically at a loss of how I can go on hedge and focus on that spirituality that my my mom was talking about or that my dad talked about when he came back. Have you talked to your family about this? Yes. What do they say? Um, my father didn't understand. He told me that there's nothing that brings those two together for him. Okay, you have a political grievance. I understand that. That should have nothing to do with the, with the pilgrimage. And I, I don't think that he's wrong. I think he's right. You know, I think... Um, I want to be able to be that person to go on the pilgrimage and focus on just Your spiritual development. Exactly. You know, um, but I'm playing through it in my mind right now. I'm, th I'm seeing myself show up to the airport, giving the, the several thousand dollars to the officer who's going to accept the visa money. And I'm not going to see that money again. And I know where that money's going to go. So 
And I'm not trying to tell Muslims we have to boycott. This is the breaking point. This is it. I just want to voice that dilemma that I was going through. And I was surprised to see that so many people related. But I do think it's important for me to make that distinction. I'm not putting out a call of action to say we need to abandon the hajj. If you've been saving up money and you think you can focus on your hajj, go. Like, that's awesome. I want to be that person. But right now, I'm just, I don't think I can. What's been the response to your article? I've had a lot of people that I respect come to me and say that they didn't think that this was the best course of action for Muslims to take. Why do you think that is? Why do you think so many people have come to you and said, no, this this is too far. This is something we shouldn't do. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. That's something that I was thinking before hitting the publish button, you know? This isn't, I'm not here for the the pure argument. You know what I mean? I don't think that in its core, there's only one way to see it or feel or, or, or think about it. I think this is the the nuance that comes with going through this kind of moral and ethical dilemma. I think everyone's going to be able to, everyone has to be able to respond to it their own way. And as long as that is maintained, then it's totally understandable and un, that somebody would come to me and say, this is the wrong decision. Because for them, yes, it is. That, that's true for them. But for me, it's not. How much money do you have saved up right now? Ten grand. So You're halfway, halfway there. there. You're halfway there. Yeah. So I got some time to think about it. And they have some time to, to clean up, you know? Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Iman. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done. I've always kind of been on a version of this beat since like 2007. My beat's so broad, though. It's like <laughs> it's like the entire world. If I have a question about the world, I talk to this guy. My name is Josh Keating. I'm a senior editor at Slate, focusing on foreign policy and international news. Prince of foreign policy news. Crown prince. Yeah. I called up Josh because I wanted him to tell me more about who Turkey's Recep Tayyip Erdogan is and what he might want from this diplomatic crisis. One piece I saw compared Erdogan to a mafia boss milking this moment 
where he could turn the world against his big regional competitor, Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I mean, one important thing to point out is Erdogan knew Khashoggi. They were uh, they were apparently friends. Obviously, that aside, Turkey wants to use everything it can to sort of sideline MBS. Josh is talking about MBS. That's Mohammed bin Salman, the real crown prince, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. As Erdogan leaves this breadcrumb trail of information about Jamal Khashoggi's death, it seems to me that the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and Turkey are locked in this love triangle. The United States needs allies in the Middle East. Turkey and Saudi Arabia want U.S. support, politically, financially. So I asked Josh to explain who the players are here, starting with President Erdogan. Uh, Well, he's the former mayor of Istanbul. He's associated with the AKP party, which is a a religious party that sort of fought against the sort of longtime secularist, military-dominated government in Turkey. So he first came to power in 2003, and he was prime minister for a long time. And then uh, he altered the constitution basically to make a stronger presidential system and then moved over to the president's office, uh, where he's been in power since 2014. And he he went through this evolution personally, too, right? When he first came to power, there was some hope that he would open up the country and there'd be more journalistic freedom and a more open political system, right? Yeah, Erdogan was viewed with a lot of hope, especially in the U.S., as this kind of model of, uh, you know, what a moderate Islamic government could be. Turkey wasn't exactly democratic before. It had been this longtime enforced secularist system with, you know, the domination of the military. And he seemed to be, you know, a, a definitely somebody who believed in political Islam, but uh, had a more kind of modernizing uh, liberal approach to it. And he was a big supporter of some of the Arab Spring movements too, right? Absolutely. He was a major backer of the Arab Spring, particularly the short-lived Muslim Brotherhood government that came to power in Egypt. And that's kind of at the root of his uh, the current conflict between him and the Saudis. Tell me more about that. Well, so they sort of found themselves on opposite sides of this. Turkey was a major backer of these revolutions and and saw some of these uh, sort of more Islamic governments that were overthrowing uh, longtime secular autocracies as kind of modeling themselves on Turkey in some of a way. While the Saudi government is itself very religious, it also it tends to value stability and, and definitely sees the Muslim Brotherhood and any of its incarnations as a major threat. So in Egypt particularly, they, they found themselves on opposite sides with Turkey associating itself with the Muslim Brotherhood government led by President Mohamed Morsi and Saudi Arabia backing what was eventually the coup that brought the current president, Abdel Fattah Sisi, to power. Yeah, it was last week when I spoke to Dexter Filkins, he said, well, with Turkey and Saudi Arabia, they're both kind of vying to be the leaders of the Sunni world. Yeah, it's true. And Erdogan is particularly ticked off by the Saudi crown prince, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, who sort of tried to present himself to the outside world as as this, you know, modernizing reformer, liberalizer. But really, you know, what, what MBS is pushing is not so much liberalization, but moving Saudi Arabia away from a kind of, you know, uh, theocracy to a more of a like nationalist 
more secular autocracy. And so, you know, that's obviously something that, you know, this uh, Turkish government is going to oppose. We're going to get to MBS in a second, but I just want to I want to paint a little bit more of a, a picture of, of, of Erdogan because he sort of gradually became more authoritarian. Do you pin that on any one moment? I think the big kind of inflection point where it became sort of impossible to defend him as some kind of liberal was after the failed coup of 2016. This was in the summer of 2016, a failed military coup that tried to overthrow Erdogan. And uh, thousands of people were arrested, you know, including journalists. Uh, several newspapers were shut down. And, you know, this this included several American citizens, including the, uh, the pastor, Andrew Brunson, who was uh, just released earlier this month. So while well, we spent like the last month talking about Jamal Khashoggi and Saudi Arabia's role in suppressing free speech, the thing that becomes clear when we talk a little bit about who Erdogan is, is that the, is that the people providing all the intelligence in this case are also not particularly friends to journalists. Yeah, it's it's one of these uh, ironic cases where this sort of moment of reckoning about, you know, human rights and the rule of law and respect for journalists, this sort of moment is being driven by a steady drip of information that's coming out from Turkish officials and from the state-run Turkish media. Turkey is, according to the Committee to Protect Journalists, the world's leading jailer of journalists. It has more uh, reporters behind bars than any other country. I think you said it was like 73? It's a lot. Yeah, as as of last year, there were 73. Uh, we, we should get updated numbers on that pretty soon. And, you know, Turkey as I mentioned before, has pursued its own critics abroad. I mean, there have been several cases of sort of borderline kidnapping of supposed Gulen supporters in other countries. So it's uh, it's not as if this is, you know, uh, a cut-and-dried case of, uh, you know, freedom versus autocracy. This is if the U.S. sort of reassesses its relationship with one sort of problematic longtime ally that locks up or kills its critics, it, it may uh, benefit another one. Well, what do you think Turkey wants out of this situation? One, they would love to sideline Mohammed bin Salman, who Erdogan plainly loathes, and uh, you know either sort of reduce his influence or curb him or uh, take him out of the line of succession. You know, if that's not possible, I think it's worth it to them just to kind of drive a wedge between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. A few months ago, U.S.-Turkish relationships were in a really bad place. That said, they've improved a bit lately. There's a kind of path forward where things really improve for the U.S.-Turkey uh, relationship, and he would love to, at the same time, to see U.S.-Saudi relationships kind of downgraded. You seem uncomfortable with that. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. I mean, it's it's. I think we should um, acknowledge that all these players kind of have their own interests, and that we have limited leverage, and we shouldn't be getting on board entirely with any of them. You know what I was struck by looking at the speech today was that Erdogan was actually pretty differential to the king of Saudi Arabia, but he didn't mention the name of Mohammed bin Salman at all. Did you notice that too? Yes. There is a kind of perspective on this that what there is now is less a Saudi problem than an MBS problem. I mean, I, I think that uh, the crown prince, 
you know, from, from the perspective of a lot of people, he's kind of behaved, behaved in this really cavalier manner that's kind of destabilized the Middle East. And what Turkey would really want is to see him, if not taken out of the line of secession, at least sort of reined in a little bit to have his wings clipped. In part, the speech could be read as a message to MBS's dad, you know, come get your boy. <laughs> let's, uh, let's um, you know, get this situation under control. Uh, uh, this kid's gone way too far. But, you know, after the speech was over, MBS showed up at that investment conference everyone's been talking about for a couple of weeks, and he got a standing ovation. Does that just show how hard this is going to be? He got a standing ovation, but this conference is not what the Saudis were hoping it would be. I mean, I think they wanted this sort of they wanted the, uh, you know, the Ubers of the world and the Elon Musks of the world uh, hobnobbing with him. You know, what they get is their kind of traditional friends, which is oil companies and, and energy services companies and some businessmen from Russia. So, you know, no, the Saudi monarchy is not toppling anytime soon. And there's little sign of that. But this kind of idea that MBS could present himself as this sort of Western-friendly reformer uh, is something that, you know, looked a lot more likely a year ago when he was being, you know, feted by um, Tom Friedman and 60 Minutes and taking tours of Facebook than it does today. He's always going to have Russian oligarchs and oil company CEOs, um, you know, trying to curry favor with him. Josh, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. That's our show for today. And if you made it this far, today we've got some bonus content for you. You can see a picture of Amen Ismail participating in his own mini Hajj, that one he talked about at the start of his interview. He calls this picture Baby Amen doing Baby Hajj. It's adorable. You can see it on our Instagram. That's What Next Pod. Follow us there over the next month as we pilot this show in public. See us chronicle this adventure in real time. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris. It's produced by Mary Wilson and Jason DeLeon. Our engineer is Terrence Bernardo. We'll talk to you tomorrow.